0: The defense industrial base is always a concern for the Pentagon. It worries about both capacity and whether it has a competitive market. That's why planners keep an eye on mergers and acquisitions. M&A activity is highly sensitive to interest rates. And for some insight on what to expect now that the Federal Reserve rate is around 5% and may be on the rise, we turn to Venable Law Firm partner Joseph Schmelter. Mr. Schmelter, good to have you with us.
1: Thank you very much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here speaking with you.
0: And first of all, just for those that may not understand all of their subordinated debentures and other managerial finance questions, the interest rate from the Federal Reserve, how does that affect the market in general? What is the effect of higher interest rates? Does it tend to dampen M&A?
1: It does a little bit, particularly for a segment of the buyer market, which is comprised by private equity firms. So Unlike your big strategic buyers, publicly traded integrators that everyone has heard of, the other half of the buyer market are private equity firms and sort of hybrids that are sponsored by private equity. And they finance their deals typically on a one-off basis. So if there's an acquisition that a private equity-sponsored buyer is going to do, they're going to have to go out and get financing for that deal. And when interest rates are increasing or higher than they normally are, and when credit generally is tightening, and by that I mean covenants are becoming more difficult, underwriting is taking longer, That means it's a heavier lift for a private equity buyer. Deals take longer to get done. Offers from private equity may become somewhat less competitive when judged against offers being made by your strategic, publicly traded government contractors. So higher interest rates does put a damper. That is certainly a a headwind for M&A activity, for sure.
0: And just, again, as background, would it be fair to characterize mergers and acquisitions in three basic buckets, publicly traded, taking over or merging with publicly traded. They finance it themselves through stock and cash. Then the second tier would be publicly traded or big, buying little, in which case they also finance it with stock or cash. And then middle size and small, buying other middle size and small. And that's where the venture capital comes in, or the equity capital.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair way to to allocate the universe of these deals. Although on the private equity side, you know, some of those funds can be quite large, and I would distinguish between you know, venture capital, where private money is perhaps making a minority investment in a technology company or a startup or something like that, versus private equity generally, where they're outright making acquisitions and buying control of the target companies that they're going after. And some of those P.E. funds, the Carlyles and the Bain Capitals of the world are quite large. So they rival, you know, the Lockheeds and the Northrop Grumman's uh, and the Litoses of the world in terms of their buying power. That's a good breakdown.
0: All right. And how would you characterize activity this year, especially in that equity capital type of market that we've been talking about? Is it up, down, level? And we had a watershed year recently, correct?
1: We certainly did twenty twenty one was the high water mark for m and a activity in the aerospace, defense and government services market, what people would typically refer to as government contracting m a twenty twenty two was not far behind. There was a little bit of a slowing down last year, especially in the second half of the year as interest rates started to increase quickly. But nevertheless, I believe 2022 in this aerospace defense and government services market was the second highest year in terms of transactions and and deal volume. So 2023 is off from those two very robust years. Probably we will end up, if I had to guess, somewhere around, you know, pre-pandemic levels for M&A activity in that government space.
0: We were speaking with attorney Joseph Schmelter. He's a partner at Venable. And to what extent are these driven by purely financial considerations? This company has a nice set of contracts or it has a good potential for contracts. And we like the cash flow, whatever the case might be. And that's a good target versus a hot technology. For example, the emergence of artificial intelligence. Does that drive activity or is it simply a financial calculus?
1: No, certainly there are areas that over time become hot markets, sort of sexy acquisition targets, if you will. Over time, I can think of healthcare, IT, intelligence, contractors, cyber. And currently, I think one of the biggest pushes in the federal government would be IT modernization or or digital transformation. So if you are a contractor who's successfully winning contracts, especially if you're a prime contractor, you know, in direct privity with your government contractor, and you're in an area like IT modernization, digital transformation, where the federal budget is increasing, you're going to demand higher valuations, higher multiples, and you certainly will be a hot commodity for potential buyers.
0: But on the other hand, when you take over a company like that, you're just buying people. You're not buying any real capital. What about companies that maybe make a certain connector that the military has to have by the thousands every year? It's prosaic. It's Bakelite or, you know, molded plastic and metal and some people standing there stamping out these things. But sometimes the margins are amazing on those products. What about that type of company that someone might just like because the cash flow is good and they're going to need those connectors for the next 50 years?
1: Absolutely. We spoke earlier about how private equity has become a real competitor with your larger strategic buyers. You know, private equity has figured out that, Sleepy government contractors with steady margins and really solid customers, there isn't a better customer in the world than the US federal government. And so even though you may not get the sexy margins that you would in a pure technology startup, nevertheless, as you say, over time, you've got a solid customer, you're in a niche production area. And you're going to command some of those higher multiples as well. I mean, I think right now we talked about IT modernization, but another driver is the reset, which is happening and will happen for defense contractors in light of the war in Ukraine. I think NATO in Lithuania discussed increasing NATO member defense budgets, and that's only going to spur greater activity and greater valuations of your very traditional defense manufacturing firms. So absolutely, it's not limited to who's doing cyber work or who's doing AI and machine learning work, but it's also very traditional manufacturers without whom the defense department and defense departments around the world cannot you know, reach the goals that they've set out to achieve.
0: Yeah, you can almost rewrite that old movie line. I have just one word for you, young man 155 millimeter howitzer shells.
1: <laughs> or plastics or something like that. Yeah, right. absolutely.
0: And in your experience, at what point, if ever, does anyone say from the Pentagon, say, golly, I really wish that company would not get bought? I mean, sometimes they can have a say in the really big mergers and acquisitions, but at what point do they ever, or do they ever, express, golly? we like the competition this one is providing with that one.
1: Yeah, I think there's two things going on, two levers that the federal government can push when they're really concerned about a particular transaction. You mentioned one, and that's if there's just an outright anti-competitive result. There's the federal Scott rodino statute, which when you get to a certain deal size, needs to be vetted in order to determine whether two companies coming together will have unnecessarily anti-competitive effects. But the other has to do with organizational conflicts of interest. This is something that you see in the GovCon M&A world that you may not see in the private sector. And that simply has to do with whether or not because of an acquisition or a merger, you've got two different functions happening within the same contractor, which the federal government is loath to allow to go forward. So by that, I mean, you may have contractor A, the target who is being acquired, and they're in the business of helping their federal government customers and agencies put together their procurements, set out their requirements. So that's the job they're doing for their customers. And then they're being acquired by somebody who's in the business of pursuing the very contracts that are going to be let in the short term. So when you've got an organizational conflict of interest like that, An OCI, they call it, that's a second area where the federal government is quite concerned and will really do their due diligence and may require one or the other of the two companies coming together to shed one of those businesses to get rid of those OCIs.
0: Sure. And just a final question, what's the outlook for 23 remainder and calendar 24, do you think?
1: I mean, I think right now we've sort of got competing headwinds and tailwinds, which are fighting to a stalemate. We've got sort of the headwinds being just the federal government's reset that I mentioned in Ukraine for defense contractors. You've got a positive political picture in the sense that we narrowly avoided a debt ceiling crisis only a few months ago. So the risk of default is off the table, and it doesn't look like we'll have a redux of sequestration and the Budget Control Act that we had under the Obama administration. So those are all the tailwinds, but the headwinds are higher rates. You mentioned that at the outset of our conversation, general credit tightening, inflation, And so I think those things are sort of fighting themselves to a stalemate right now. I think we'll see relatively steady deal flow through the rest of the year and into next year. We'll have an election toward the end of next year. So oftentimes, buyers will sit on the sidelines and try to read the tea leaves and see whether we're going to have a Democratic or a Republican administration in the White House before they pull the trigger on some of their M&A goals. So I think with all of that, uh, sort of neutralizing headwinds and tailwinds and a little bit of political uncertainty in an election year. I think you're in for sort of steady MA activity, you know, below the high water marks we, we hit in 21 and 22.
0: Attorney Joseph Schmelter is a partner at Venable. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom.
0: And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members, raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity
2: and hard work work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome, and thank you for being here.
3: Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. mine.
2: You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How has your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The
3: time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground. Because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people. Uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a liberal wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arena. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry as I've grown
2: through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all?
3: Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff. Okay. Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot. And please understand, when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of ALG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision. Right. And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done.
2: As CEO at at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not just nice to have. We rely on. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style?
3: You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders gets me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely casts division. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there, ready to go, and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative, it's an energy that I cannot explain.
2: I can explain it, I'm feeling it right now. (laughs) Um, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader.
3: You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South, I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible and with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect. Right. Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity. Right. It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It, it, it's, it's needed. It's needed. Uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as
2: a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's, it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy yes right? yes it's a lot easier than having multiple personas absolutely you, yeah absolutely what's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career
3: you know i don't know you asked for one but i'm i'm going to have to elaborate on two yes, if that's yes. okay number 1 i would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what i did right because to me Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do. But integrity to me is what you do, even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the, and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE, And it's membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today. That's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough.
2: And one question that's always kind of interesting at at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before. Mm -hmm. um, Is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today
3: it was my grandmother you know with the understanding that when and when i was born right as i said i was born in the deep south my father worked extremely hard we didn't have a whole lot you know my i had 12 siblings and so when i was born i was very sick matter of fact doctor said i wouldn't live to be 16 years old a doctor said i wouldn't ever hold a job but my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt.
2: Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. just mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership.
0: Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.